Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Come and enjoy the presence of the Lord. John 17, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little skipping here today. I want to start with verse number 20, but I'm not just going to read verse by verse. going to skip a little bit. All right, so John 17, verse 20. The Bible says in Jesus's, this is what's known as his high priestly prayer. He says, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Verse 23. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Verse 25 now, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Amen. I want to minister this morning uh, along these lines. And as I was uh, pondering this uh, this morning, I was thinking then about having our missionary service as well. It just seems to go, I think, very well with the whole uh, theme of today. I want to preach that the world may know. That the world may know. All right, can we go to the Lord in prayer? I know we've been doing a lot of singing and praising and worship, but let's pray one more time that the Lord would help us at this this juncture in the service. Father, I come to you right now. I'm asking, O Lord, for your anointing, God, on pulpit and pew. God, let there be a synergy, God, a working together. A yea and amen, Lord, to your word and to the scripture today. Open our hearts and our understanding. I pray, O God, to be able to, Lord, to speak what you once spoken. God, I pray, Lord, mark any air from my mind and from my lips. Help us, Jesus, today to see God what Lord you would have God for us in this service through your word in the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I pray amen and amen everybody say amen amen you may be seated this morning in Jesus name that the world that the world may know as I mentioned just a little moment ago this John chapter 17 has uh, notably been called Jesus' high priestly prayer here in the New Testament scripture. Prayer of Jesus praying in his flesh uh, to the spirit, amen, that dwelt inside of him, to God. And in that prayer, in my Bible at least, I know Bibles uh, uh, operate differently, but in my Bible, it has this particular chapter broken up in about three different sections. And uh, the headings of those sections are these. It says that the first part of the chapter is Jesus' prayer for himself. Uh, the middle portion of the chapter is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And the latter portion of the chapter is Jesus' prayer for believers. And in reality, according to my Bible, the last section begins with verse number 20, which was the first verse that I read in your hearing today, that prayer that started somewhere along the line that neither pray I for these alone, speaking of his disciples. He says, but for them also which shall believe on me. And so with that understanding, Bishop, I would like to change the heading in my Bible and cross it out. And rather than say that the last portion is Jesus's prayer for believers, is that it's Jesus's prayer for non-believers. It's for those that shall 
believe. It's those that are going to come to believe. And Jesus, we understand very well that he spent the latter years of his life pouring himself into a ragtag group, if you will, of 12 disciples or 12 apostles. He spent his life pouring himself into those particular men, unable to do that perhaps with the whole multitude or masses. He took 12 aside and apart and poured himself into them, not to the exclusion of the multitudes, not to the exclusion of the rest of the nations, but he knew that the purpose of the 12, that whenever he would leave, that he would still have a visible group and a vocal group, nucleus, if you will, that would be intact whenever his presence would no longer be upon the earth, whenever he himself would transition from the visible to the invisible, from the vocal to the less vocal, he would still have a group of people, a group of disciples that would still be visible and still be vocal. Jesus in his flesh, and that's what he's doing. He's praying here. He's, he, he's a man. He's humanity here that's praying in his flesh, and he prays explicitly in the spirit to the Father, to the Father, and says, the world hath not known thee. He makes a claim. He says, Lord, uh, God, Father, the world does not know you, but he says, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. See, there's something interesting because outside of being of the nation of Israel or being a Jew or Hebrew, if you will, uh, there was a world, even in Jesus' day, that was really detached and removed from the God that you and I know. They were greatly detached from the God that we know. They had an idea they had a concept of a God, or if you will, gods, amen, that was greatly influenced by their culture, greatly influenced by their surroundings and their environment. To them, a God was something that was fabricated by their own hands. To them, a God was something that consisted of some durable materials such as wood or stone or perhaps a precious metal. It was a God that made demands of them. Uh, maybe they felt like they were walking on eggshells around about their God and they had to grovel in his presence out of fear rather than reverencing, if you will, their God. So there's a, there's a great misconception. There's a great chasm between their concept concept of God and really knowing the God of the Israelites, the God, amen, that the disciples knew. And perhaps Christ said it best, Bishop, whenever he said, the world doesn't know you, God. The world doesn't know you, God. Because generations before, even in Old Testament times, we see that there's a people that held the role of God as a ruthless dictate as as somebody that is very uncomfortable to be around but our generation in our hour in our day the world that we know in this earth uh, views their God as sometimes a conformable compromising servant bowing and bending to every human preference that they have type of God uh, just as in olden times their concept of God was skewed I believe today in our culture and in our time, people's idea of God is skewed. Ask somebody, just ask somebody today. Ask them to describe God. And I guarantee you, he will be described as loving and compassionate to a degree, though, 
of excusing sin and even borderline endorsing it. I don't want no one to misunderstand. Our God is a loving God. And our God is a compassionate God. And our God is for sure at all times ready to forgive. And our God loves us in our sin. And our God loves us through our sin. Amen. Scarcely for righteous men would one die. Yet, you know, here we see in the scripture, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. So I think that's proof enough that he loves us in our sin and through our sin. But he also loves us enough not to leave us in our sin. That's the reason why I could tell the lady that was caught in the very act of adultery. He says, I don't see no accusers around here. But listen, go and sin no more he loves us in our sin through our sin but he loves us enough not to leave us in our sin and so I would believe there would be a world even today that we could stand if you will as mediators and say God they don't know you like I know you the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14 for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth, everybody say henceforth, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him which died for them and rose again. They don't know you, God, was the cry of that age from Jesus. It's the cry of our age. They don't know you, God. The reason why people get wrapped up in the love aspect of God and he did indeed die for them but my understanding from 2 Corinthians 5.15 here is, is that if he died for me and he loved me, there's a henceforth that should take place in my life. I no longer live the way I want to live. I no longer just go wherever I want to go or do what I want to do. I don't live to my own liking or for myself, but henceforth, if he loved me and he died for me, I am going to live unto him which died for me and rose again. They don't know God. Amen. And so in the powerful prayer of Jesus Christ, he's very, very intentional in verse number 23 on the world knowing the world knowing firstly that he's been sent to them and secondly that he loved them and that he loved them to the degree that he had been loved. Loved them to the degree that Jesus had been loved. And there are a lot of different rows in New Testament scripture that Jesus served in his time upon the earth. Some come to know him as the Savior. Others would deem him to be a healer. Some would say that he was a prophet or as the Son of God or as a teacher, a rabbi. All these different titles, amen, and roles are spoken about Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry upon the earth. But there are at least two occurrences in Scripture that I know of spoken of all in the same book, the book of Revelation, that says that he is described as the faithful witness or the faithful and true Witness, And as he prayed in verse 25, he said, The world does not know you, but I know you. 
And whenever you hear those words, Sister Craig, I hear a sense of responsibility. I hear a sense of duty that is accompanying each word because he says, they don't know you, but I know you. And so the, the, the question then that comes out of this statement is this. So what am I going to do with what I know that they don't know? If they don't know you and I do know you, what am I to do about that? Someone say amen. And on the other hand, they know that you sent me. They've seen me, they've touched me, they've been healed by me, they've heard me, and somehow I understand a responsibility, Jesus is saying, upon my life. I gotta bridge the gap between those that don't know you and those that know me because I know you. And I gotta somehow bridge the gap. Someone say, be a witness. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2 and 5, for there is one God, everybody say one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. A mediator, the, the, the interpretation is, or the definition, one who intervenes between two. Either in order to make or restore peace and friendship, or form a compact, or for ratifying a covenant, a medium of communication, an arbitrator. For example, it says every mediator... Whoever acts as a mediator does not belong to one party, but to two or more. And that is why God made himself a body and came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because a mediator is not of one party, but he's of two parties. He was the spiritual, he was the great God of heaven, but he came down in the likeness of men because he had to become a part of the party of men in order to be then the mediator between God and men. Galatians 4, 4 tells us when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, what? Made of a woman. Amen. Humanity made under the law, Jesus, the flesh, the human side of him. But with that same line of thought, we read in the New Testament scripture that the Holy Ghost came upon Mary, his mother. And that child that was conceived, that Jesus that was conceived inside of her, in her womb, was conceived of the Holy Ghost. And so then we have Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes, he was man. But yes, he was spirit. Yes, he was humanity. But yes, he was deity. And in that position, he had a responsibility. He had to serve as the faithful and the true witness. Amen. To humanity about the reality of a God they did not no. Why? Why, God, did you have all this orchestrated? I sent him into the world, maybe for something very simply, but for that the world might know him. And folks, whenever I picture in the final hours of the Lord strewn upon the cross, and I see one hand is stretched out and nailed to the cross, and the other hand is stretched out and nailed to the cross in the opposite direction. What I see there on that tree is a witness. What I see there on that tree is a mediator. I see the man Christ Jesus and the spirit of God that was invested in him and I see him reaching for the world that did not know him and reaching for that God and pulling them together at the juncture of the cross. Why? So that the world might know him. 
He made it his purpose. He made it his plan. If he can, Jesus can be found guilty of anything, he can be found guilty throughout the Gospels about constantly talking about his father, constantly talking about his daddy, constantly talking about this God that the world needed to know. In just a few verses of Scripture through the Gospels, he was speaking to people, and these are some of the things that he all times said. He said, all things are delivered unto me of my father. Amen. They don't know him, but I'm talking about him. I'm trying to get them acquainted with him. He says, wish ye not that I must be about my father's business. What's he trying to do? He's trying to make some introductions here between those that did not know him and he who did know him. My father worketh heretofore and he says, I work. What are you doing? He said, I'm trying to do something here so that the world might know. I am come in my father's name. What are you doing, Jesus? I'm trying to get the world to know him. I do nothing of myself, but as my father hath taught me. What are you talking about? They don't know him. I'm trying to introduce them unto him and he unto them Jesus made reference time and time again you can look through the scripture he's talking about his father because he wanted the world to know and he said in verse 20 of that high priestly prayer he says I'm not just praying for them I'm not just praying for my disciples I'm not just praying for these 12 that I poured my life into he said but I'm praying on those that shall believe upon me through their words through the disciples words the apostles he did not leave this world without leaving a witness in the world he did not leave this world without still leaving a mediator in this world ladies and gentlemen that witness and that mediator today is the church it's you and it's me because I know him and I still live in a world that many don't know him hallelujah and I gotta somehow find a way to bridge the gap to introduce this world to him The high priestly prayer of Jesus. Look at John 17. You can read through it. And there's a, there's a lot spoken of his word and, and the world. But if I could just take a, just a little casual jump through it here, here for a moment. Jesus is praying. Look, and this is the attitude. Really what he's praying this. This is what the attitude of the believer or the church should be to the world. He says in verse 6. He says, we are not given to Christ out of the world. Verse 11, we are in the world. Verse 14, we are hated by the world. Verse 14, we are not of the world. Verse number 15, we are not to be taken out of the world. Uh -huh. He says, but kept from the world's evil. He says in verse 18, we are sent into the world. Why? To witness to it as our master did. Why? That the world, in verse 23, might know him. That they might know who he is. That they might know that he loves them. Jesus says to that ragtag group, Jesus, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for those that are accounted as mine. I'm going to ascend into the heavens. And I will someday come again. But I'm not leaving without a witness being in the earth. Amen. I'm going to send my spirit. Huh. So I'm not leaving without a witness being in the earth. I'm going to send my spirit. And John 14, verse 17 says, Even the spirit of truth, whom the world, look now, he's telling the 12, 
not leaving the world without the, I've been the mediator. I've been the witness. This has been me. He said, but whenever I leave, I'm not leaving the world without a witness. I'm going to send my spirit, even the spirit of truth. Now look, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth. Neither knoweth him. But look at the transition, the placement of responsibility and duty on the 12. But ye, but ye know him. He said, I'm sending my spirit back. They can't receive it because they don't know him. They haven't seen him. He said, but you guys have. Could you imagine maybe, maybe Peter or John or some of them, I don't know how bright all of them were, I really don't. But could you imagine some of them, well, he's in the spirit back and they can't receive him. Well, what good is this going to do? You know, they've never seen him and all. What good? If they don't, he said they don't even know him. Wait a minute. Wait, boys, shut your mouths for a moment. You know him. God, what good is all this going to do if they can't receive you and they don't know you? You all know him. When I look around, we can sometimes say, man, this is in a horrible condition around here. These people are doing everything like they don't even know God. What in the good, what's going on around here? What, what can take place? I wonder, I wonder what's going to happen. They really need to know the Lord. Hey, wait a minute, folks. You know him. You know him. You've seen him. You believe him. It's up to us to be the witness in this modern hour, the mediator between God and men. Someone say hallelujah. So I'm sending my witness. I'm sending my witness. I'm going to establish it in the earth. I'm going to send my spirit. You will know it because it's been with you. You're going to know it because it's been with you. And he says it shall be in you. <laughs> he said, but the world isn't going to know it. In verse 21 of John 14, he says, I will manifest myself to you. But the world will not know me. Now look at verse 22 of John 14. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot. Didn't that witch Judas? Lord, look at this. How is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us? And not the world. How are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? Well, Judas. The answer to the question is within the question. Everybody say us. Pardon the Southern Illinois right here. Us. Use. <laughs> Use are the means by which Jesus will be manifest to the world. I've spent time with you. You know me, and the world knows you. You got to bridge the gap. Maybe there was more to Paul in his saying about how we should take up our cross daily. Maybe it was more than just repentance. Maybe we need to flange our hand and grab a hold of the world and get a strong grip on God and pull them together so that the world might know him. Have you ever been with somebody that you had a relationship with, you knew perhaps they were your friend, whatever, maybe the dynamics. 
and then entered a third party. And that individual knew the person you knew, but you two didn't know each other. You understand what I'm talking about? This happens all the time. It happens all the time. And there's conferences and things like that. You have somebody that you may know. Another person comes in because they know a person in that circle as well, but there's two others that don't know each other. And if you're the one that doesn't know everybody in the group, then it's a little bit of an awkward moment. It is. It's a little bit of an awkward moment because whenever the third party comes in, and then your friend and that other person begin to interchange and talk about it. It could be memories. It could be whatever. It's kind of awkward as you keep standing there, not knowing the other person, don't know, know, know their name, don't know maybe what their office or title is, what, 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 what city or, 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 or state that they're, they're from, and you're just kind of sitting on a conversation, and you can't really make no connection there because you only know half of the party. For that matter, it's a little rude if you are the person that know both individuals. It's a little rude to have the other friend standing there and carrying on conversation with this one over here when you've not made any introductions. All right. Now, I've been in both positions. I've been standing there not knowing, and I've been the person that knew both. If you're the one not knowing, after it seems like the third party leaves, you don't usually do it during, that's rude. But after they leave, you look at the person you know and you say, who was that? Well, that was so-and-so. They're a really great person. And you begin to talk about how you know them and how you ever met them. I've tried to be really good about this in my life because... uh, I remember what it's to be like standing there not knowing. Been there, done that more than once. It's very awkward. It feels just a little awkward. And so I tried to the best of my ability. We're about ready to go to camp meetings and conference. If there's somebody maybe young coming up and they know me, I know a, a few people, you know, in life. And so if there's someone that comes up that I don't, I don't take no chances whether they know them or not. I'll say, brother and so-and-so, this is brother and such-and-such. He, he lives in da-da-da and does whatever, and I state our relationship. And I try to make introductions because I know how awkward it is to be in that position and how rude it is just to remain in that position, to not make the introduction. But we're walking through this life, and we know God. We're walking through this life, and we know God. And we know a lot of people that's on the exterior of the church. And for some reason, they know that we know God, but they don't know God. And we're having relationship with him. We're having conversation with them. And all along, they're standing there in the shadows wondering, who is he? How did they ever meet? Somebody needs to make some introductions today. We got to say, world, this is God. And I met him when I was eight year old at a prayer and I repented of my sins. I was baptized in Jesus' name and he's been walking with me ever since. He's pulled me out of a lot of jams. He's healed my body. He saved my lost family. I'd like to introduce you. I'd like to introduce you to the world. They're in need of somebody like you in their life.
Come on, somebody. Why do we need to do this? So that the world may know. I'm not done yet. You all can sit down. Amen. We'll get there. Seriously, I'm serious. Amen. How rude of us. And for them to go back to the closures of their homes and the closures of their family with their hang-ups and their addictions and their marital problems and everything that they got and all the time just going back to wherever they are after communion with us and wondering, I wonder who that other person is. I wonder who that other, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. They speak so highly of them, but I wonder who that other person is. the witness individually collectively as a church we are the witness just read something the other day and this is no personal reflection really it's not and I don't know maybe it is I don't know all time buy books I'm a book hoarder <laughs> I love books love to read books I got a lot of books I've not read one of these days before I'm dead I'm going to read them what I do if I get my hand on a good price book, I'm going to get it. It might not get read that week. It might be years from now, but I'm going to read it. And so I'm always reading a book. There's always some books that are going. I got markers maybe in two or three books that I'm constantly reading. There's some in my office right now marked on my shelf. I know where it's at. And I know you all know that my memory's not the best when it comes short term, but I can remember where I was in that book. I can remember what's going on. I can remember. So I picked up a book, Brother Mason. It was the midlife manual for men. Again, this is no personal reflection. But B and I might reach that place one of these days. I thought I'll just read it. And, and I, try to, I try to underline in books. I keep a file of book excerpts. Uh, you always need preaching material, okay? Keep, I keep it. Whenever I underline, I'll go back through the book every bit of that underline gets digitized as that book page number so on and so forth and their ta there's tags associated with them I can find them whenever I'm doing research for sermons okay but and this this is not one of those that just came about okay it's not in my notes I was reading the other day and it said in there and it was just talking about bad relationships that you know men may have had with their fathers or mothers so on and so forth but it made this statement that just stood out to me it said starving people will go to great lengths to get food and at times we'll almost eat anything something pricked me I remember if it was yesterday mowing the lawn I think a lot while I mow the lawn blades of grass being cut you can just really get caught up in mesmerized thought and that came back to me and I thought about the church and I thought about a world and I thought God starving people will go to great lengths to get food and at times we'll eat almost anything. And I started to ponder my, my wife a lot of times. She likes to do, she's a reader too. Lord knows that we're about ready to go on a trip for two weeks. She's already piling up the books that she's going to read. She'll probably cut, oh, probably eight books out in the first five hours, I'm guessing. 
We might have to get a U-Haul just for her books for, to read while we're gone for two weeks. And all of this, you know, there's a, there's a lot of concern right now. <clears throat> the world is turning in a natural means. They're turning back toward this idea of healthy food and healthy eating and getting away from junk food. And we've all spoke about it before. We understand this very well that, you know, junk food is a dime a dozen. It's cheap. Junk food's cheap. You can find it on the shelf. It's readily available. Amen. Readily available on any shelf. But the sad part of it is, and you can do some, you know, a lot of what's in it's artificial. Bunch of preservatives, bunch of additives. My wife was reading me the other day some of the things that they have and stuff actually tricks your brain to make you feel that you're more full than what you actually are. It's causing health issues, setbacks in people's lives. And so there's this idea then of a, a healthy food. But the problem or supposed problem is is that healthy food comes with a higher cost. It's harder to find. It's unique, but it's real. It's genuine. And it's less likely to provoke any health problems. But the world don't know the church of God. I'm not talking about a denomination. The church don't know God. The church or the world don't know him. The world don't truly know God. There are a bunch of starving people and they're willing to satisfy their appetite with anything because of their starvation. And they'll get junk because it's a dime a dozen. They'll get junk because it's there readily accessible. They'll get junk because it's there at every level. But what they don't realize is it's artificial. What they don't realize, it's pumped with a lot of preservatives and a lot of additives. That's going to cause them a lot of issues later down in life. Honey, we got to stand up as the church and say, hey, this is organic. This is real. This is genuine. It might come with a higher cost. But in the long run, it's going to save you. Someone say amen. amen. In First, First Kings 18, the Old Testament story, we read that Elijah, he goes to that mount called Carmel. The prophets of Baal have already done their thing in trying to summon their God. Their God. And so Elijah goes to the mount. He's repairing a broken altar nail. He's gathering the stones together. He digs a trench around about this altar of 12 stones. He places the wood on top of the, that stone altar in order. He cuts up the bullock and lays the bullock upon the wood, upon the stones that make up that altar that he prepared. He has four barrels of water poured on the sacrifice, the wood and the stones. And he doesn't just say do it once, but he says do it the second time. And he says do it the third time. Twelve barrels of water poured upon the, 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 the bullock and the wood and the stone this altar and it even filled he even had what whatever water leaked down into the trench he said let's go on and fill it up until the trench is full of water as well now Elijah solitary man so it seemed here you're going through a lot of work here buddy repairing an altar cutting up a bullock getting the wood there getting all this water there you sure invested in a, a lot here of what you're doing. You're, you're making quite an investment. You're kind of going all out, aren't you, Elijah? Look at all this. The trench, the work involved in digging the trench. Now you feel, 
What's so important, Elijah, that you go to such a great measure with everything that you're doing here? And Elijah answers that question in his prayer to the Lord why he went to a great measure with getting the stones together and the wood and the sacrifice and the water. He solidified it all in what he mentioned in his prayer there in 1 Kings 18 and verse 37. He said, Lord... If I could say it like this, I've done all this. I made all this preparation. I went to great lengths. I made the investment that I made today that this people may know that thou art the Lord God. I put the time in so that the world may know. I made the sacrifice so that the people may know. I made the investment so that the people may know that you are God. Lord, all of this was done to prove to the non-believers and to the doubters the reality that you're God. There is no sacrifice too great. There is not too much time spent in making sure that those that are on the exterior of this building know that he is Listen to what the apostle said in New Testament scripture. Everybody hanging all right? Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20. The apostle Paul says this. Here's the, the, the degree, the extent that he went to. He says, unto the Jews I became as a Jew. That I might again, that I might gain the Jew. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without laws, without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. That I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I, made, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save or by say some. And this, look what he says, I do for the gospel's sake that I might be made partaker thereof with you. Now, this is very peculiar Bible mathematics. I know you all are out of school now, but we're back in school. This is particular. This is very peculiar Bible mathematics because according to Paul, all things plus all men plus all means equals some people. All things plus all men plus all means equals some. What that undergirds to mean, I think what it should undergird to the church is this, the importance of going forward with everything that we possibly can to reach our world that they might know because you can do everything in every segment of society and be involved in much as you can, community, church, and so on and so forth, and still get a net total of some. And so if you're just putting forth little and some effort, then the end of the equation isn't even going to come to the sum level. It's going to even be lacking in that. And so all plus all plus all equals some. So that tells me I need to invest with everything. And Paul says, I do this for the gospel's sake. Why? So look, so I can be a partaker with you. What are you saying, Paul? He said, I don't want to experience this by myself. I want to be a partaker with you. <laughs> with who? With those that don't know him. 
again Wednesday night Bishop said he said for years we reiterated the only thing that you can take with you to heaven is people 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 Paul why are you acting like this why are you doing this I think I have a little bit of an understanding maybe why. I believe Paul acted like he did here in 1 Corinthians because he could remember his own conversion. Hear me. He remembered the Ananias in his life that took a chance on him. He remembered Ananias. He was a no-name disciple, really. We don't read anything else of Ananias so, so much so. Hey, man, he's a no-name disciple of Christ that was sensitive to the need of a person in the world that was around him. And so much that Ananias in Acts 9 told Saul, he said, Saul, God has sent me and his purpose is twofold for your life. He wants you to get your sight back and he wants you to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I believe Paul was putting everything into it because he remembered his own conversion. Someone reached out to him, amen, that didn't know the God of heaven like he needed to know and he knew it because of a person's witness. Someone say amen. We see the pattern in the book of Acts over and over again. After the 120 has been filled in the upper room with the Holy Ghost. Amen. As Acts 1.8 says, they were endued with power from on high. For what purpose? That ye shall be a witness. Everybody say witness that you may be a witness. And so Jesus in his earthly ministry, he's walking along the corridors of the Sea of Galilee, up in high mountains, and he's talking about his father. And so the disciples, after Jesus is gone, what do you see they are doing? In Acts 3, the Bible says Jesus Christ was preached unto them. In Acts 5, it says they cease not to teach and preach in Jesus Christ. In Acts 8, Philip opened his mouth and preached unto him Jesus. In Acts 9, Paul had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. In Acts 17, Bishop, the Bible says at Thessalonica that Paul, amen, was there. Amen, he spoke. He said, this Jesus, he says, I preach unto you. What are you doing? I'm making introductions. Watch. Paul leaves Thessalonica. He's on his way. I'm in Acts 17. Bishop's been in a Bible study on Wednesday night. He's going for week number three coming up. In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come. He's just kind of waiting there for them to come. As he waits there, he's stirred in his spirit. He's a disciple of the Lord. He knows God. He's seen God. He's seen the handiwork of God. But as he's standing here right now, he's looking around, and there's a bunch of people that don't know God, and he's stirred. In that environment, they come upon him when he was around all the other disciples, and he was among the churches. It's whenever he was positioned around those that didn't know him. Something stirred inside of him. What do you think was happening? I'm thinking his sense of responsibility was coming on him. They don't know, but I do know. And the Bible says he was stirred, amen, inside of his spirit, amen, about what their concept of God was. <laughs> and so Paul jumped on something. 
He says, these people's got to know. That's all there is about. That's all there is to it. These people got to know. And so he goes to that, 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 that very recognized place of Mars Hill where people would hear questions and answer questions and just do that all day. He went to that place where people would need to know. In Acts 17 and verse 18, Sister Rhonda, the Bible says, and Bishop just preached on this, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this be? babblers say what's Paul going to say and other some he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them he said he's a setter forth of strange gods but he's preaching to them Jesus look they don't know they don't know and the resurrection and the men of Athens Paul even said Bishop this is just this here folks it's just repeat it's just looking over what we've looked over the past couple Wednesdays the men of Athens had made an altar look We'll break it down. They made an altar to the unknown God. Let me state it this way. They made an altar to the God they didn't know. A God they didn't know. Paul says, I know him. Paul says, I'll be a witness. That he said in verse 23, Him declare I unto you. Why, Paul? So that the world might know. He goes on and he begins then testifying about his relationship and how he knows God. He begins to tell them that God made the world. He begins to tell them that God doesn't live in man-made temples. He tells them God doesn't need anything. And God gave his life for all. And that God was in control of all time. And that God was even close at hand, their hand. And that God created them. And that God didn't need to be created. And he told him in verse 29, he said, folks, we ought not to think uh, that the Godhead is like to gold uh, or silver or stone uh, or graven by art of man's device is what he's saying. He's saying your concept of God is that. He said, but you don't know God. I know God. That's not God. God walked and was robed in the flesh. He died and rose three days and is alive forever no more. Why are you saying all of this? So that the world they know if you'll stand with me today he's laying it all out Brother Mason you come he's laying it all out so that the world may know and I don't know where the, this is where the first idea or concept then came to Paul where he first learned his Bible mathematics that all plus all plus all would equal something. Because in the closing verses of Acts 17, the Bible states to us very plainly that that mathematical formula bore true. The Bible says, after all these people have heard this, and Paul made the introductions and the exchanges, that there was... A certain group, the Bible says there were some that mocked him. And there were others that said they would hear him again. And then the Bible speaks of a certain group that joined themselves to him. And there's even a couple names mentioned 
specifically a couple of people who came and joined themselves to Paul. So, man, he laid it all out. This is God. You can't, you can't create him. You can't make a temple to house him. He's the creator. All of this stuff. He lays it all out. And laying it all out. Got some mocking. Some saying, I'll hear it again. But others that joined him. So I'm telling this as a church today. Jesus' prayer is still just as pertinent in John 17 as it was when he first spoke it. If we close our eyes and hear his voice, the prayer's the same. He's saying, neither pray I for these, these who? The disciples alone. I don't just pray for them alone. He says, but for them also which shall believe on me through the disciples' words, through the church's words, through their deeds, through their actions, through their testimony, through their witness, through their daily cross of outstretched hand, grabbing a hold of the people they know, trying to introduce them to the God they know. I pray for them. Why? Because the world needs to know me. They need to know my love they need to know my judgment they need to know of my coming again they need to know I left the world but not without a witness but it's not going to be seen by the world or manifested to the world it's going to be manifested to those that know me and then it's their responsibility to get the world to know it and know me that the world may know. These altars are open. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.